uh, glad to be back, and we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. If you've got your Bibles with you, or if you have your Bible on your phone, or if you need to use a physical copy of a Bible, there are some on the table to my left and your right. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And we've been in Mark, we're going to be in Mark up through uh, until we take a break uh, in December for Advent, and then we'll pick back up Mark in the spring, and we'll finish out the Gospel of Mark um, by Easter Sunday, God willing, of next year. And so we're in Mark 5, 21 through 43, to just kind of provide a quick refresher. Um, we had, uh, bef before we broke for um, guest preachers in August, we talked, uh, JT preached about a Jesus um, displaying his power over nature when he calms the storm in the boat with the disciples. Uh, then we looked um, at Jesus' power over uh, the spiritual world as he cast the demons out of the demon-possessed man in Gerasene. And then today we're going to look at the last two of Jesus' parables of power where he demonstrates his full power over any and everything because he is the creator of the world. So if you've got your Bibles, be sure you're flipped to Mark 5, 21 through 43. In the summer of 2013, I had what ended up being a benign bone tumor removed from the top of my right foot. And due to the location of where the doctor had to make the cut and the weakened bone from where the tumor had sat on there for over four years, I was put on crutches for a month after surgery. And I stand before you today to say that nothing reduces you to helplessness in an otherwise healthy body quicker than crutches. I couldn't carry a cup of water from the kitchen to the couch. I couldn't put my dishes away. I couldn't do laundry. For the first few weeks, I was dependent on either my wife or Adam Melancon to help me wash in the sink. They faithfully washed my hair for like three straight weeks, and for that I am forever grateful. And lastly, because the surgery was on my right foot, I couldn't drive, and so anywhere I wanted to go, I was dependent on someone being willing to take me. Now, to be honest, I hated about 95% of this, but there was about 5% of it that was really nice. Like, nobody could argue with the reality that I couldn't help myself. And so to kind of have your every need catered to, just kind of a little silver bell to ring, and, oh, what would you like today, Chris? Oh, well, let's see, what do you have for me? About 5% of it was nice. Needless to say, everyone, myself included, was ecstatic when the doctor released me from being on crutches and put me in a walking boot. He gave me clearance to shower on my own, and I regained the use of both of my hands while walking. I still couldn't drive, but I was at least otherwise functionally able to care for myself. But if we're honest, none of us like feeling or being helpless. We've bought into the pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps mentality, and we are reticent to ask for help as if it's a sign of weakness, even when life and death may hang in the balance. In our return to Mark's gospel today, we see Jesus meet two people who have been reduced to helplessness. And as they come to him, they aren't shunned or chastised for their state of affairs. Rather, they are seen by Jesus, they are heard by Jesus, they are touched by Jesus, and they are healed by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you acknowledging our helplessness in so many ways. 
from our inability to save ourselves to our inability to control the rising and the setting of the sun. There's so many things that we're helpless before that you've given us in your goodness and in your grace and in your care. And so, Father, the story of Scripture from Genesis 3 on is you redeeming and rescuing helpless people. And that's who we are when we gather as your church. We are those helpless ones who have been redeemed. And so, Father, whatever burdens, whatever worries and concerns we may bring in here tonight, we bring them before you with an honest confession of how really helpless we do feel with what we're facing. And when we trust that you're not going to be displeased or offended, Father, but you welcome our honest confession of our own weaknesses and limitations, our own inabilities, our own helplessness, because there's grace for us there. There's your power to work on our behalf there. And so, Father, will we come to you tonight just in full surrender and in trust. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read, it's a rather lengthy section, but I'm going to read and then we're going to go back through and unpack this story from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. This is what Mark writes. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great ca- a crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. 
Jesus and his disciples returned to the Capernaum side of the Sea of Galilee after their brief foray into Gentile territory of Gerasene, where ministry had been both frightening and fruitful. And as these men make their way off the boat, the crowds immediately begin to rush in, jostling, bumping, grabbing at, and seeking to be near Jesus. We've talked about this a little before, but when the crowds surround Jesus, it's like the Black Friday Walmart rush on steroids. Like there's no like single file line. It is a mad rush, a sea of humanity reaching and clawing and grabbing and moving people out of the way all with the hopes of getting before Jesus, of being around him, of getting close enough just to touch him. Somewhere near the back of the crowd, a few voices begin to fall silent, and the crowd begins to part. And quickly, with purpose in his stride and desperation in his eyes, Jairus, one of the local synagogue leaders, makes his way before Jesus. And when Jairus gets face-to-face with Jesus... Does he open up his appeal for help with a list of his accomplishments? Does he demand Jesus' help because of the position he holds in the community? No, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, as which the NIV and ESV study Bibles say shows his sincerity, his profound deference, and desperation. And he begs, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. The gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus speaking no words to Jairus. It only says that Jesus went with him. Think about how unnerving and anxiety-filled this moment must have been for Jairus. You are at your wit's end. You are before a man that you believe has the power to heal your daughter. You humiliate yourself before the crowd. You beg and plead with Jesus to come heal your daughter, and he doesn't say a word. He just starts going in that direction. Can you imagine that moment for Jairus? Everything in his life, it feels like, is hanging in the balance. And he goes to Jesus. And we don't have record of a single word being spoken. But Jesus went with him. Can that just be a word of comfort for us tonight? We can go to Jesus when our life feels like it is hanging in the balance, and perhaps it is. And while it may seem as if we hear nothing in return from the prayers we are pleading before God, we have this promise. Christ goes with us. That's how Matthew ends his gospel. Behold, I am with you even unto the end of the age. Faith looks like going even when it feels like God is being silent in response to our pleadings. And so they go. Off the crowd goes. Everyone now kind of falls in line. Jesus, now accompanied by a synagogue ruler, the the crowd begins to take a little more shape and a little more order as they go to the front. And they are moving in a very direct and quick path towards Jairus' house. But on the outskirts of the crowd that are now pressing around from behind Jesus, there stood a woman who had been among the living dead for the past 12 years. 
plagued by a menstrual hemorrhage. She had been ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus 15, 19 through 30. Therefore, she was cut off from social contact, from economic opportunity, and from temple worship. And if she were married, she would have been divorced by this point. Her husband had been given every right to leave her because she was unclean. Not only that, but to be in public with the disease that she had and the issue of blood that she had, she would have to announce her uncleanness so that nobody would touch her and receive secondhand impurity and be defiled for the rest of the day. So it wasn't just that she suffered in silence, but to even go out and be in public was to openly and continually confess out loud the issues and the situation she was facing. It was an ever-present reminder of her shame. It was an ever-present reminder of all that she had lost. She has lived 12 years and now finds herself not only broken financially, but broken spiritually. And as a crowd moves past her towards the house of Jairus, she begins to work her way in behind Jesus, hoping to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And every move she makes through the crowd, she touches people without telling them that they are now ceremonially unclean. She is risking her life to get to Jesus. So she makes her way through the crowd. Her hand inches forward, briefly passes over the fabric of Jesus' outer garment. It's a flitting touch full of doubt and hope, worry, superstition, and a small amount of faith. It's a pinpoint of light in an otherwise dark and lonely life. But out her hand goes, knowing if this does not work, if this doesn't work, all hope for me is gone. Mark tells us that when she touched his garment, she immediately felt the flow of blood dry up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately, Jesus realizes that power has gone out from him. Even though he's not said a word or been confronted, he is aware that there is power that has gone out from him. There is divine power, not man-made, not man-generated power. It is divine power as he is fully God and fully man that has gone out of him, and he wants to know who's responsible. He begins to look around and ask the disciples closest to him who has touched him. Now you can imagine for a moment the look of indignation on the disciples' face as they look back at Jesus with what you would almost imagine is a mocking tone. And they say, you see the crowd pressing around you, really? Like we're going to have this discussion now? You got to know who's touched you? Try everybody. Like let's just start there, Jesus. But they're like, you want to know who touched you? Do you see, have you felt everyone jostling you? Luckily, Jesus isn't thrown off by the disciples and their banner back and forth with him, but he continues to intently search the crowd for who has touched him. And then Jesus stops. And when Jesus stops, Jairus stops. And when Jairus stops, the crowd stops. Everyone had been on the way to the ruler of the synagogue's house to see Jesus restore his daughter to health. 
Now they've come to a complete standstill in the middle of the road. The woman begins to realize, if this convoy is ever going to move forward again, I've got to go forward. So, burdened with fear of both the crowd's reaction when they recognize her because surely she would have been known, and not fully sure of what Jesus' response towards her would be when she comes forward, she, much like Jairus, comes forward and throws herself at the feet of Jesus, totally helpless and totally dependent. And what does she do? Mark tells us that she fell before Jesus and told him the whole truth. Jesus had become her last avenue for hope. Now faced with the reality that she was going to have to look the teacher in the eye, with no prompting from Jesus, it appears, she spills everything about what has happened. Think about that for a moment. Before a man that she's probably never met before, she lays it all out. All of the shame, all of the fear, all of the doubt, all of the tears. She owns the fullness of who she has been for the past 12 years. And what is Jesus' response? Full compassion, full mercy, full love, and full forgiveness. Jesus looks her in the eye. And he does not regard her as an outcast. He does not regard her as a woman. He does not regard her by any way that she would think she was worthy of being regarded. He looks at her and he regards her as daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Her whole family had disowned her over the past 12 years. She never thought she would hear herself called daughter again. And the creator of the universe, full of love and power and compassion, reaches down into her life, looks her in the eye, and calls her daughter. He doesn't just heal her disease. He restores her to the people of God. It's the same for every one of our lives. He not only looks at us full of pity and compassion and love and power and redeems us, but he restores us to the family of God. And he looks each of us in the eye and he calls us sons and he calls us daughters. And all the exile and all the years that we spent in aimless wandering away from him in our sin, convinced we don't need him, in a moment we are faced with the same reality of the woman who had had the issue for 12 years with blood. When we come before Jesus, we always have to ask ourselves, am I willing to tell him the whole truth about who I am? And can he be trusted with it? And well before the cross, we get the answer, and it is yes. Because the woman tells him the whole truth, and he calls her daughter. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says about the woman with the issue of blood, Her faith was uninformed, presumptuous, and superstitious, but it was real, and Christ honored her imperfect faith. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've remained at an arm's length from Christ because you feel like your faith isn't 
perfect. You feel like all your motives aren't exactly right. And so you continue to circle around the periphery of who Christ is and what Christ is doing. But the invitation before you today is the same as it was for the woman. Will you come before him? Will you own the truth of who you are? And will you trust that when you tell him, imperfect and lacking and small as our faith may be in the moment, do you really believe that he would look at you and call you a daughter or a son and be pleased with you in that moment? We are not called to have perfect faith, but we are called to have real faith. Maybe, maybe today, the woman in Mark 5 is the example or the encouragement you need to go before Jesus and confess it all and trust him with the truth of who you really are and find the freedom that only he can give. So right as Jesus pronounces the benediction of healing over the woman with the issue of blood, there's a contingent from Jairus' house that arrive to inform him not that his daughter has made a miraculous recovery, but that his daughter has died, and as such, Jesus should be left alone. We're going to revisit this in a few minutes. But if you're Jairus, what's your view of the woman who just got healed? If you're Jairus, and this woman slowed everything down, and in the length of time that Jesus is dealing with this woman, your daughter could have been saved, your daughter dies. What's your view, not of Jesus, what's your view of the woman he helped? We don't know what Jairus's view was, but I can probably give you a good answer on what mine would be. And so Jesus pronounces a benediction, and at the same time, there's the report that Jairus's daughter has died and that Jesus should, ju should just be left alone. After all, if he can control nature, nature and evil spirits and sickness, that's all fine and well, but they've never met anyone who could overcome death. So leave the teacher alone. Surely he doesn't have the power to overcome death, right? We can only imagine very briefly, or maybe you have real life experience. I'm not going to downplay this over the heartbreaking grief, anger, and hurt that ripped through Jairus in this moment. You have risked it all in coming and humiliating yourself in front of Christ. And everything that you wanted him to do now appears gone. What good is he? We can't be surprised if Jairus at least entertains that thought in the moment. What good is coming before him and asking him for help if he can't even get there in time? But Jesus turns and he looks at Jairus and he says this, Do not fear, only believe. What Jesus invites Jairus into is a display of faith that he's just seen from the woman with the issue of blood. Jairus, don't. Don't fear, only believe. And you've just seen what belief, imperfect, lacking belief in me can accomplish. So you've got an option, Jairus. You can be fearful or you can believe. So don't fear, just believe. So Jesus takes Peter and James and John with himself and Jairus, and they 
quickly make their way the rest of the distance to the synagogue ruler's home. And when they arrive, the scene is full of the deep grief and anguish one would expect when mourning the loss of a child. Then Jesus delivers one of his most stunning utterances in Mark's gospel when he says, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Guess who's nearby who can hear him? Jairus' wife. Guess who probably knows for certain if their daughter is dead or not? Jairus' wife. How ca- I mean, just imagine how callous that has to sound in the moment. That you are in the deep, very raw first feelings of loss and grief over your child dying. And Jesus comes in and goes, why all the commotion? They're not dead, they're just sleeping. What do you do with, like, what do you do with that? In that moment, this doesn't fit our often neat portrayals of who Jesus was and how Jesus reacted and interacted with people. But let me let you in on a little secret. You could understand the scoffing laughs of those who have been mourning because they would look at it and think, Jesus, miracle worker though he may be, is misinformed about how the real world works. Like, hey, man, you can do some cool stuff, but we kind of know when people are dead. This girl is dead. There's no sleep. This isn't a matter of wanting to avoid burying someone alive. She is dead. But this is what Ben Witherington points out. Sleep is the term a person uses for death when one believes in resurrection. Sleep is is the term a person uses for death when you believe in the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, John, I'm the resurrection and the life. He doesn't believe it. He is it. And so he can walk into a room, he can walk into a house that is in the vice grips of grief over death, and he can say they're just sleeping because I am resurrection power in your house. And so it's not callous and cold in the moment for Jesus to say she's just sleeping if he is who he says he is. And so sleep, sleep is what you can call those who are dead if you believe in resurrection. So Jesus, Jairus and his wife and the three disciples make their way into the girl's bedroom. And upon entering the room, there's no denying that she has died. And Jesus, just like with the woman in the crowd, in tenderness and mercy, speaks life to the dead girl. He takes her hand and he calls her to life. She, in an instant, arises and begins to walk around, fully restored back to life. Still in shock, Jesus calls everyone back to the moment by telling them to give her something to eat, proving that she is indeed alive again, and commanding them not to make known what has happened. Before, Jesus didn't want things made known about what he was doing because he didn't want there to be confusion about his role and his responsibilities and his title as the Son of God and the Son of Man. But you can't believe in resurrection until the author of resurrection rises from the dead. And so Jesus asked him not to say anything because you can't fully understand the impact of what he's done in resurrecting this girl to life until Jesus himself faces death, until Jesus' own mother will mourn and grieve his death for three days, until he stands and rises and walks out of the grave, 
forever defeating Satan, sin, and death for those who put their faith and trust in him. But you can't understand the truth and the reality of what he's done in this girl's life and in this family's life until Jesus himself tastes death and resurrects. Jesus' own family will feel the pain. His own disciples will feel the cold, hard grief wrap around their hearts. And Jesus will but sleep because he is the resurrection. And it all, from Jesus' perspective, happens so matter-of-factly that it can be hard for us to put ourselves in the position of those present in the room with Jesus. Notice how small a thing it is for Jesus to resurrect someone. There's no elaborate scenes. There's no elaborate sacrifices. There's no elaborate chants. Jesus, by simply extending his hand and speaking life, resurrects a girl from the dead. That's the power of our Savior. That's who we go to with all of our issues and all of our problems. A Savior who can raise the dead by simply speaking a word. The NIV Study Bible notes, Whereas humans can do nothing about death, for God it is merely a matter of awakening a sleeper. If you are a believer today, rejoice in the fact that Christ took you by the hand, called you to life, and commissioned you to service. And let it serve as a call to pray for those who don't yet know Christ, that he in his mercy would look on them, call them to life, and commission them to service. This is the reality of everyone who has ever been saved in the history of the world. They were dead. We were dead. The girl on that bed did not extend her hand to Jesus to be made alive again. All of the impetus, all of the movement, all of the power resided in Jesus alone. And he took her by the hand and he raised her to life. And that's the same story we all tell of our own salvation experience. We were dead in our sins. Jesus saw us. Jesus, in tender love and compassion, took us by the hand. He spoke life into us. He raised us from the dead. And then he then commissioned us and sent us out in service. But I want to go back and I want to revisit something. Jesus says, with the woman with the issue of blood before him, daughter, your faith has made you well. At the same time that those from Jairus' house say your daughter is dead. When you read that section in Mark 5, you are meant to hear daughter said at the exact same time. And then there are two wildly different realities for both daughters. One daughter is told, your faith has made you well, go in peace. The other would have ended with, your daughter is dead. It's a stunning juxtaposition of life and death, of restoration and loss. And if we're, honest, if we're honest, it is life as we have all experienced it in some way or another. Watching Christ work to restore and heal and redeem in someone else's life, while the very things we have come to him for seem to wither and die on the vine.
this is our reality. I mean, and maybe some of you have a, not been here yet, but you will eventually face it. But I think for the most part, all of us have experienced this to one degree or another, where we stand and our own tears of grief are mingled with tears of joy, both for what Christ has done and mourning what he has not yet done in our life. But this is where I want us to land tonight. And it's that this scene confronts us with the truth of God's impartiality. Which means God isn't biased, he isn't prejudiced, and he isn't unjust. Jairus does not get preferential treatment over the outcast woman because of his position in the community. Now if we read this, and we're just honest we would say the 12-year-old girl had so much life in front of her. This lady has been suffering for 12 years. What's another 20 minutes? What's another 12 years? Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. He deserves to have you go to his house and heal his daughter first. Have this woman stay where she is and come back. She doesn't deserve it right now. But God's not partial. God's impartial. And so Jairus doesn't get preferential treatment. But if we're honest, we often believe that God should be biased towards us for whatever reason we deem appropriate. appropriate, And however we deem ourselves more deserving than the other. You can imagine Jairus could make the same argument. Look at all I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. You owe me. But God didn't know Jairus to go to his house and heal his daughter. And he didn't know the woman with the issue of blood to heal her either. One of the best things you can rest in is the truth that God is impartial. Because if God were partial, God would be unjust. God's impartiality means that he is not unjust. It means that he always and forever gets justice and mercy and grace and redemption. He gets everything right because he is not swayed one way or another. The only person God could be partial to in any way is himself. But God is impartial towards each of us. That means when we use things like ethnicity, race, education level, or socioeconomic standing, or any other various way that society tries to stratify us and label us, when we begin to use those things as, a, as an adjective for who we are as a believer, we begin to put ourselves in direct opposition to how God views all of us. God does not view us by any other adjective and then Christian. He views us as a believer and a follower of Jesus. He views us as a Christian full stop. That's why we denounce and oppose things like racism, white nationalism, Christian nationalism, and any other worldly system that tries to make God partial to one group over another. Mark 5, 21 through 43 is a testament to God's impartiality. He sees and meets the needs of whomever 
he chooses, however he chooses, whenever he chooses. We will never go to the table with a bargaining chip big enough to cause God to be swayed to do something for us. God is impartial. And this is the truth throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says this, For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Acts 10, 34 through 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God isn't partial. And so maybe you're the woman with the issue of blood. Maybe that's where you resonate with this section of Scripture tonight, that you've been ashamed and felt disqualified because of what you feel like has made you unclean, and you need to come before God. You need to come before Christ in full trust and confess the whole truth to Him, knowing that He loves you if you're a believer and that He still will call you son or daughter, and He will restore you and send you out. Perhaps you are in the position of Jairus's daughter. And life and the circumstances left you felt beat up and dead on the side of the road. And perhaps you need people to go before God on your behalf like Jairus went before Jesus on his daughter's behalf and carry your burdens before the Lord in helping you express your need for help. And you're waiting for God to reach into a situation or into a circumstance and provide healing and help and comfort. And if that's you, I pray that you would go to him tonight. And perhaps you just need to pause for a moment and rejoice in the truth of your salvation, that God in his love looked at you in your deadness, saw you, loved you, called you to life, and commissioned you to serve. And perhaps, perhaps tonight you need to confess and repent of the fact that you viewed God as partial. And in so doing, it has called you to harbor anger towards God and anger towards others, especially other believers sinful anger so tonight wherever you are come to jesus whatever you're facing whatever you're facing trust that god is impartial but beyond being impartial he is merciful he is compassionate he is full of pity love power and life come in your helplessness with an encouragement from a classic hymn which says what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer prayer blessed savior thou hast promised thou wilt all our burdens bear may we ever lord be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer soon in glory bright unclouded there will be no need for prayer rapture praise and endless worship will be our sweet portion 
there. Let's pray.